What comes to mind? A relationship. Okay. A friend. Excellent. The whole approach that I'm presenting is founded on this one verse. This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Doesn't matter how much theology you know. Doesn't matter how well you know the, the truth. Now, please, as I said yesterday, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that the Seventh-day Adventist doctrinal message is wrong. But if all we present is the message and don't present Jesus, we've actually made the message a handicap in people's lives. Doctrine has no meaning if it doesn't help us connect with Jesus and walk with Him. And the journey that we have, and Pastor Steve, I praise God that Dan Collins sat down with you and told you those two things. Keep close to those who are on fire and keep close to Jesus. That's what he was saying. And he gave you some practical tools to do it. Now, discipleship is, is really very, very simple. I have spent my life since 1978 exploring and growing and understanding discipleship and teaching discipleship. And, and I've learned a lot of things, but the more I've learned, the more I realize how simple it is. Let me give you the simplest definition of discipleship and the process. You build a relationship with God where you become friends with Him to the point where you can invite somebody else into that relationship and you help them build a relationship with Him. And then next thing you know, they're helping somebody else. That's discipleship. Building a relationship with Jesus and helping somebody else build that relationship with Jesus. And I use that concept of relationship based on this verse, life eternal, knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Now, biblically, there's two ways of knowing. There is the knowledge where you have all the information. And we often talk about be ready to give the reason for the hope that is within you. And we think that is giving them the answers to their biblical questions. Creation, the Sabbath, the second coming, the sanctuary, those things. That's not what Peter's talking about when he says that. What's the foundation of the hope that we have? Jesus Christ. Peter is saying, be ready to tell the story. What you just did was telling the story of how Jesus made a difference in your life and how you learned to walk with Him. That's what people around us need to hear. They need to hear the story, two stories that we have to tell the historical Jesus who walked the roadways and pathways of Galilee and Judea and the personal Jesus that walks the pathways of our lives with us. And you can start with either one of them depending on the situation. But a lot of times, the best place to start is your story. The gathering demoniac. Life totally transformed. How long did he have with Jesus? Well, maybe an hour or two. Okay, There's time for the people from 
the owners of the pigs and the people from the communities to come and see what has happened. So when they beg Jesus to leave, the disciples go to get in the boat, and He's going with them. His plan, He wants to be with Jesus. Well, if your life had been freed from the power and the demons of hell, wouldn't you want to go with Jesus? You remember what Jesus said? You can't go with me. What do you mean I can't go with you? Go back and tell your family and friends what great things the Master has done for you. Now, how many of the prophetic messianic prophecies do you think he understood could explain and tell to somebody else? Did he understand the 70 weeks and the Messiah that would be cut off in the middle of the week? No. But can you imagine his homecoming? It's been a long day. He's exhausted and yet refreshed. He's been torn every direction by the demons, and now he's got a new life in Jesus. And he comes home and he opens the door and says, Honey, I'm home. And the kids jump out the windows, and Mama heads for the back door. Their last memory is this man, possessed by demons, is abusing them every way you can think of. He's kicking them, he's screaming at them. It's life in that home was terrible. And can you hear him say, Honey, uh, children, you don't have to be afraid of me. I want to tell you a story. I met a man named Jesus, and he's freed me from the demons of hell. I'll never kick you again. I'll never beat you. I'll never curse you. I'll never scream at you. I've met Jesus, and I'm a new person. Can you imagine that, that reunion? As, as the kids come fearfully in to where Daddy is, and, and, and they look at him, and he is different. He doesn't look like the old daddy. There's a different look on his face. And they gather together and and that family embraces. The next morning, he steps out the door and, and his neighbor Sam is out in front of his house. And he says, good morning, Sam. And Sam puts up his fist. Oh no, Sam, I'll never fight you again. I'll never attack you again. I met a man named Jesus. Did you hear about those pigs? Those were my demons that took them into the water. Let me tell you about what Jesus did for me. Now, these people had come out and begged Jesus to leave. The next time Jesus comes into the area of Decapolis, ten cities, the entire countryside comes out to listen to Jesus. Why? One man had told his story. It really is that simple, folks. Information doesn't change lives. Relationships change lives. And so what we want to talk about today is understand that it's all about relationships and walking with Jesus. Now, I have a pastoral friend of mine who just retired a year or two ago. And we were in a conversation a few months ago. And he said, Ben, I don't know that I understand this whole thing about relationships. Especially a relationship, he's talking about relationship with God, with Jesus. He says, I'm more cognitive. 
I, I, I talk and I think about information, understanding scripture and teaching people scripture. I don't know where to start when you talk about a relationship with Jesus. I don't know that I will ever have a relationship with Jesus. He says, that's not the way my brain works. And I said, what do you mean? How did you build a relationship with your wife? I'll guarantee you his relationship with his wife wasn't all cognitive. You see, when Adam knew Eve, it wasn't shaking hands and saying good morning. The result is a new life. She conceived and bore a child. And so Scripture talks about knowing information, but it also talks about a knowing experience relationship where you know the other person. Now there are marriages, and Mary and I have worked with marriages that have tried to live together for 20 or 30 years and never known each other because they don't listen to each other's hearts. And our home changed. Remember yesterday I confessed I'm a workaholic perfectionist Pharisee that carried over into there were many times when I was working as a pastor anywhere from my average week was 85 to 90 and 95 hours a week in my heavy weeks could be 110 so I didn't have time for my children and when I was in the conference office then I had a good excuse because I was across visiting a pastor or visiting a church over yonder and our home struggled and suffered. Our children suffered. At one point, when we were in the Upper Columbia Conference, our children were asking Mary, Mommy, are you and Daddy going to get a divorce? Now, that was never an option. It was not in our vocabulary. But that was a wake-up call for me. And we entered a whole new phase of our relationship. I loved Mary dearly at that point. But you wouldn't have known it. Because work was a higher priority. Why? Because I had to work for God. And remember my life commandment? You can do better? So I always got to do more. And I'm a perfectionistic, workaholic Pharisee. That's my default mode. And God had to change our relationship and change me. Radically. And years later, our son, who at that time was 12 years old, would tell about the night our home changed when after Mary and I had asked forgiveness of each other and surrendered each other to God. Quit trying to change each other. By the way, if you don't like what your spouse is like today, don't blame her or him. You've been working for years trying to change them. And it's been working. Just not the way you wanted it to. Okay. <laughs> And we surrendered each other to God. And a few weeks later, we surrendered on Friday night. I mentioned it briefly last night. We surrendered our children to God. And we talked about the boundaries for our home, where we're going to be. 
And 12, eight years later, I heard my son tell some of his friends he remembered the night our home changed, and it pointed back to that night. Our job is not to control or change the people around us. And some of you are in churches where there's a lot of that going on. Some of you may have even been in the process of trying to change everybody who comes to that church. And I'll just say it very clearly and very bluntly. Stop playing God. It's not our job to change people. And when we try to, we stand in the way of God being able to. Our job is help them connect with Jesus and trust Jesus and the Holy Spirit to change them. Because that's the power of relationships. And we build relationships to help them connect with Jesus. So let's talk about what that is like. The whole concept of God with us. The whole concept of relationship goes back to creation. And at that creation week, Christ's crowning act, that is page four in your materials. And you think, are we going to get through all the materials this week? We're not. We'll talk about, and I'll point you out some things that you can study at home. But at that creation Friday, when Adam opens his eyes for the first time, he begins to explore what God has given him and Eve. And the first thing he gives them is his shared image. Let us make man in our image. Now, I have spent many, many hours studying that concept, and I still haven't fully understood it. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? And the reality is that in spite of our sinful world and our sinful nature and our sinfulness, there is still part of the image of God that remains in us and creates a hunger for more of God. I have attributed a saying to Blaise Pascal, a 17th century French philosopher, mathematician, and theologian. You know, there was a time when you had individuals who were the Renaissance men or women who understood all the information and science and knowledge of the day. Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Blaise Pascal, other great minds of the past. Today, those don't exist because our information is so much broader and greater. You can't master any one area. Look at medicine. You don't just have specialists. You've got subspecialists. I have a friend of mine who was a member of our church years ago who's a plastic surgeon. You know what he specializes in? Reattaching hands and fingers. Now, he does other plastic surgery, but that's his specialty. I don't care what area of medicine you're looking into, there are subspecialists. Because nobody can master everything in their area, much less everything in medicine. 
That's the way knowledge has multiplied and increased. But Blaise Pascal was one of those brilliant superminds that seemed to be able to work in every area. So he's a mathematician. He came up with some new mathematical formulas and stuff. He was a philosopher who was well known in his time, and he was a theologian. And there's a saying that's been attributed to him that I've quoted, and that, that he, they say he said, "We were created with God with a God-shaped hole." That we can't be happy until God fills that hole. Now, I have not been able to find that statement in anything that Blaise Pascal has written. And uh, thanks to Google now, uh, you can research and it's a lot easier than trying to buy all the books about Blaise Pascal. What I have found just in the last couple of weeks is that there's a long extended paragraph that somebody else adapted into that short statement. And I have no clue who, who did that. But whoever said it, starting with Blaise Pascal's wider concept, whoever said it came up with an incredible truth. We are not complete until God is an integral, intimate part of our lives. We will not have peace. We will not have joy. We will not have good relationships until God is at the center of our lives because that's how we were created. We were created for a relationship with God and then with each other. And notice the sequence. You cannot have genuine, deep, powerful relationships with others if you don't know Jesus. Now, I'm not saying you can't have friends. But the whole relationship changes when God is in the middle of that. I don't worry about telling people, don't build friends with people around you. I tell them, do that. Because Jesus is even stronger than COVID. He's very, very contagious. And if you have this relationship with Jesus, it's going to come through. Because... Part of the process of life transformation is becoming more and more like Jesus. Reflecting His image, His character, more and more. That's part of what God shared with us at creation. The second thing He shared with us was the shared intimacy, this friendship. In Genesis chapter 3, we have this picture after sin comes in. God comes walking into the garden. Now, there's a lot that we have to assume here because it doesn't tell us why he came walking. We assume it's because they're in sin and he's going to confront them with their sin. That's how we've looked at it many times. We grow a little bit and we assume he came there because he was wanting to reestablish that relationship. Yeah, that's true. But I want to suggest that this is a habit that Jesus had. He created them as friends, and He maintains the friendship through daily communion with them. And this is an incredible concept when we understand that Jesus is the one who initiates this friendship. He doesn't wait for us to come looking for Him. One poet calls Him the Hound of Heaven, who pursues us until we respond to Him. 
So that's the second great thing that God gave us at creation. The third great thing is that God gave us a shared governance. He gives Adam and Eve dominion over the garden and over this world. They are His agents, His managing partners, managing His resources on this world. Now imagine what our future will be when the universe is made new and sin is removed and this earth is made new and we continue as His managed. By the way, that's what stewardship is about. It's management partnership with, with Jesus. Now, I used to talk about God being the manager, and I realized, no, He trusts us to be managers over His resources. Now, that just blows my mind, because I don't always feel trustworthy. Am I alone? Is there a witness here? <laughs> and that's the amazing thing. He can trust me, not because of me, but because He knows what He's doing in me. And this, this is the incredible partnership that began in Eden and continues today. In all of life is that partnership. Every part. Our family, our homes, our possessions. And we think stewardship is about giving. That's pastors and preachers and churches trying to manipulate you into giving more money. God never asked you to support His church. He asked you to worship Him and recognize Him as only. And we return our tithes and give some of our generosity to God for His church. But the advanced level of financial partnership with God of reflecting His character and an attitude of generosity and giving is when we listen to His Holy Spirit, touch our hearts and say, help this person. When the Ukraine war broke out and we heard about Adventist homes and people having to leave their homes, and, and not just Adventists, but the whole crowd, Mary and I both felt convicted to give something to help some family over there. And we found a way to give and be guaranteed that it would go to help an Adventist family in the Ukraine. Mary and I started talking about it. And when we started talking about how much, God had impressed on both of us the same amount. Now that's the fun level of giving. Tithe is a worship level where I recognize He's owner. It's a reminder to me every time I have an increase that it all belongs to Him. He doesn't want 10%. He wants us to recognize that 100% is His. And the first step is give it all back to Him. So you manage it with open hands. And you give 10%. You no, you don't give. You return 10%. Because what are you giving him? It doesn't belong to you, so how can you give it to him? Okay. So you return 10% to him to remind your sinful heart that it's all his. And that's an act of worship, recognizing who he is. Okay. So God doesn't ask you to support His church. He could support His church any way He wanted to. He could make it so every time they did started digging the, the trenches for the foundations of a new church structure, they, you hit gold or diamonds so that it paid for the whole building. And we would be the ones that would suffer. Because it would be His church, not our church. 
that building belongs to us. And that us is not just a plural us. It's a one us, where we are one with Jesus and each other in what we call the body of Christ. That church doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the body. But when you're part of that body, it's our church. I was just reading something this morning. There's three places in Scripture where there's a combination where more than one becomes one. One is the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The other one is the marriage where the two become one flesh. God, husband, wife, one flesh. The other one is where God takes a whole crowd of people, connects them to Jesus Christ, calls them out of their lives to be connected to Him and to each other, and we become one body. And when we begin to understand that, it changes how we do church. You see, it's all about this relationship, this friendship with each other, with God, and this dominion, this shared governance. That means you and I have responsibility for managing God's resources. We don't have responsibility for managing or trying to control each other. Because there's only one head to that body. And Jesus has never abdicated His position as the head. He has never separated Himself from His body. Does that make sense? The fourth thing God gave us was the shared dependence. Interdependence. Where He is part of and dependent upon us. I've talked about that and how incredibly mind-blowing that is. And In fact, I've had pastors arguing, God can't be dependent upon me because He's self-reliant. Of course He's self-reliant, but He chooses to depend on us to manage His mission, His resources. But what happened with sin? Shared image became a sinful nature. Shared intimacy became enmity with God and each other. Shattered relationships. Shared governance became slavery to sin. And interdependence, shared dependence, became false independence. How old was your child when they first said, me do it? Or mine? It's in our DNA, folks. Why? Because of sin. Adam and Eve were created with this natural relational attitude that shared image, shared governance, shared intimacy, interdependence. Sin destroyed that. And redemption is the process of restoring that relationship. And one day, one day we won't have to worry about the sinful nature. But let me tell you something. That sinful nature doesn't have to define you. That's what, that's what Paul writes about. Romans 6. We're in, if we're in Christ, we have 
If we've been baptized in Christ, we've been buried with Him in His death and raised in His life. We are, we are dead to sin. And so in verse 11, he says, count yourself, or King James says, reckon yourself. Good southern translation. Reckon yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. Think of yourself as dead to sin, but alive to God. And in Romans 7, the next chapter, as Paul struggles with what he wants to do and what he doesn't do, and what he doesn't want to do and what he does, and he talks about, old miserable wretch, who can save me from this? In verse 17 and verse 20, he says, So when I do what I don't want to do, it is no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells within me. And he's not schizophrenic. He's not schizophrenic. And when I finally understood it, and I shared it with you yesterday, I realized he's saying, God, Paul is saying, don't let your sinful nature define who you are. Don't let your struggle with sin define who you are. Let Jesus define who you are. And then, let who you are transform your struggle with sin. You were not created to fight against sin. If God had intended you to struggle against sin, He would have given you the equipment, the knowledge, and the power to fight against sin. He didn't do that. First of all, He doesn't need to. Jesus already won that war and that battle on Calvary. And when we try to fight against sin, not only are we doing something we're not equipped to do, we're trying to take His place. It's what we accept by faith, this new life in Jesus. And our job is to learn to live out who we are. Not to try to get there. Because, as Romans 6 says, if we have accepted Christ, we have been baptized into His death and raised into His life. When you accept Jesus, you're already there. And when Paul... And 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. That's your reality and mine. And we'll come back to that. Okay? So, God promised a solution right there in the garden. Genesis 3.15, the first expression of the gospel. It's going to be a painful process. It's going to be harder for the woman. It's going to be harder for the man. But God's going to take care of the problem. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. Isn't it interesting that Genesis starts out with the gospel as soon as sin comes in? And the gospel continues throughout the book of Revelation right down to the end. Showing that we will never live without the gospel anywhere, anytime, throughout eternity. Jesus joined our journey. And the picture that John presents in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. Nothing was created without the Word in Him. All things were created, etc. Climaxes with verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became one of us. Max Lucado states it this way. God moved into our neighborhood. 
The term there is tabernacle builder. That's the same term that is used to describe the Old Testament tabernacle, except in verb form. He pitched his tent with us. He he became part of our journey together. And while we're still weak, while we were still sinners, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Quit trying to be good enough for God. He didn't ask that of you. And when you think or when I think that I have to be better before God can work in my heart and life, or before He accepts me, I am denying Calvary. So we, we realize that right now, in Jesus, we have life. Sounds like 1 John 5, 12, doesn't it? Look at the biblical examples. I'm going to walk through these very quickly. Adam and Eve began life in a relationship with God. Enoch maintained a personal walk with God. Noah's relationship with God led to God using him to save humanity. God established agreements or covenants with Abraham, his friend. We look at the list of the greats in Hebrews 11. Have you read Hebrews 11 lately? You remember the stories of these people? If I was going to make a list of true followers of God who really knew God, I wouldn't have put all those people in that list. And if I was God and was able to choose my ancestry, my human ancestry, I wouldn't have put all the names that are in Matthew chapter 1. Especially the women that are in there. That's nothing against women. It's just recognize what kind of women are they? I mean, Tamar? A daughter-in-law who's frustrated because the father-in-law is not following what he's supposed to do when her husband dies? So she dresses up as a prostitute and puts a tent up where he's going to come by. And he goes into her. This godly patriarch. Okay? And he doesn't have any cash with him, and that wasn't the day of credit cards. So she said, well, give me a couple things of your possessions, and that when you send the payment in an animal, uh, I'll return it. And as soon as he's around the bend in the trail, she collapses the tent, goes away. He sends the servant. There's no prostitute in that area. Nobody knows of such a prostitute. And then, daughter-in-law becomes obviously pregnant. And her father-in-law is going to do the biblical thing. He's going to have her stoned. And she said, before you do this, I'm with child by the man to whom these things belong. I mean, you think some of our politicians have problems when their secrets are revealed? (laughs) Here's the spiritual leader of the tribe, of the family. And he says, she's more honest, has better integrity than I have. Tamar. 
And then the Moabitess. Bathsheba. We never talk about Solomon. He's the king. Did she even have the option to resist the invitation to the palace? Oh, not in that culture. But Jesus is choosing his ancestors and he chooses people so that nobody can ever say, you don't understand me. I, live, I, I grew up on the other side of the tracks. You don't understand my background. And Jesus says to us, you ain't seen nothing yet. Check out my great-great-grandmothers. Yeah, grandfathers too, Haskell. But in, in the genealogy, it's the grandmothers that stand out because of the contrast. And the attitude of our culture. <laughs> it's always easier to condemn the woman than the man. So we've got a heritage of doing that. But, but you see what I'm saying? God knows our weakness. He wants to work with us where we are. And so, we have this incredible picture where we can learn from these biblical examples. Adam and Eve began life in a relationship with God. Enoch maintained a personal walk with God. One little girl went to Sabbath school. Her mother was sick. Went to Sabbath school. When she came home, her mother said, well, well, what did you learn about? I learned about a man named Enoch. Well, what did you learn? Well, he's a friend with God. Well, how did that work? Well, every day, he and God took a walk together. And after walking together for a while, God would say, well, it's time that we go back home. And Enoch would turn around and go to his home, and God would go to his home. Until one day, they walked so far, God said, don't worry about going back home. Just come home with me. Sometimes our children understand things better than we do. God established agreements, covenants, with his friend Abraham that led to him to take a slave population out of Egypt and make choose them as his people. Confused in their theology, confused in their religious practices, worshiping pagan gods, the golden calf is not something unique to their culture. They had worshipped these kinds of things in Egypt. And the fascinating thing in that story is that when Moses confronts Aaron, his brother, who made and fashioned that golden calf, Aaron says, well, we just took all the gold and, and, and silver and threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how sin helps us deny our responsibility? But here, God makes these promises and He brings these sinful people out of Egypt not because of what they've done or who they are, but because of who Abraham was and His promise to their ancestor Abraham. And the amazing thing is that when He made that promise to Abraham, He knew what they were going to be like when they came out of Egypt. And Moses needed, should have known what they were going to be like because he'd written the story. 
But he still gets frustrated. Wouldn't you? I'll give you a little secret. I don't know of a pastor on earth who hasn't been frustrated with his church at one point or another. And I don't know a church who hasn't been frustrated with their pastor at one point or another. One man told me early on in my ministry, and I thought it was something unique, but since then I've heard it dozens of times, when a pastor comes to a church, he makes everybody happy. Some when he comes, and some when he goes. Or when she comes, or she goes. (laughs) Why? Because we're human. And one of the reasons we have so much struggle in our church is it's about us, instead of about him. And the church is not about our relationships. It's about our relationships with Him and His relationship with us individually and as a group. And if that's not happening, you're not a church. You're just a club fighting over the rules and over the membership fees. Okay? So... Look at the list of grace in Hebrews. God calls us friends. And Jesus is coming back for us. And I can't wait. But, let me suggest that Jesus has already come back to us. And for us, individually and as a church. We're not left here alone. We don't have to continue living on our own, individually or as a church. If we know Him in this relationship, we live with Him now. And He lives in us. We're just waiting for when He comes and sin will be no more. And death will will be no more. Yesterday afternoon, Mary and I went down to Saluda, where my parents used to live years ago, and where they're buried there. We went to the cemetery. And I spent, we spent almost two hours cleaning the gravestone. Lichen and mildew or whatever had grown all over it. Hardly read the names on it. And the whole time there I'm thinking about when that ground will split open and those ashes will be turned into transformed living flesh. And when the angel will tap me on the shoulder and says, come join us as we go to Jesus. In the meantime, I want to enjoy my relationship with the God that my father and mother loved. Now and forever. It's all about relationship. From creation, throughout the ceaseless late ages of eternity, it will be about relationship. And you can have the right relationship without knowing all the right information. And part of growing in that relationship is discovering new insights and new information about Jesus and about our walk with Him. So, we can learn from these witnesses. We are designed to be friends with God. Jesus came to restore 
the sin-shattered friendship with God. The Christian life is a daily adventure when we live and walk with Jesus. Did you see the word there? Did you hear the word adventure? If you're bored with your Christian life, your church relationship, there's something missing. Because the journey with Jesus is a daily adventure. And that's the most exciting thing about the relationship with Jesus. Every day you can wake up looking forward to something new with Him. Every day. I've already already had my something new this morning. I was reading a book. And it told me what I shared with you about there's three places where that oneness appears. The Trinity, the church, the marriage. That's exciting to me. It just kind of reaffirms everything I've been teaching you. And what I love to experience in my walk with Jesus and in my marriage with Mary and in our home with our kids and now with our grandson. Because relationships may be painful because those, those closest to us hurt us the most. Where does that put Jesus? But don't forget, He rejoices over us too. Zephaniah 3.17, He rejoices over us with singing. We'll talk about more, more on that later. So, I want to just briefly introduce you to the concept about relational Bible reading. And I have to tell you a quick story. I'm on a flight from Los Angeles to Guadalajara, Mexico. It's Christmas time. I'd flown from Washington, D.C. to to L.A. on United. Had checked in my baggage and everything else. Had boarding passes with Mexican Airlines. Aerolíneas Mexicanas. And I get there, and this was before 9-11 and the whole issue of, of TSA and everything. And the last place you want to go on a plane at Christmas time is to Mexico. Because all these folks who have been working and living, living and working here in America, are going back home and they are taking everything, including the refrigerator and kitchen sink, back to their family. They don't worry about weight limit for luggage. And so here's this huge crowd of people waiting to check in, and every one of them seems to have a mountain of luggage, and some of their luggage is just bur- burlap bags with rope tied around them, those cardboard boxes. And I mean, everybody has got stacks of this stuff. And I'm looking, all I've got is my carry-on because my check-on baggage is already gone. It's already checked all the way through. So I happen to notice that this long line here in coach is contrasted by nobody at first class. So I go up to the first class counter, and, I, and I'm speaking Spanish, because I'm totally bilingual and bicultural. And I go up and I said, excuse me, ma'am, I am not a first class passenger, but I already have my boarding pass. I have everything ready to go. My luggage is already checked through. Do I need to check in in this line, or can I go straight to the gate? Because I don't want to wait that long, long, that long line. I have ADHD. 
No, I have. I don't have ADHD. I don't have that hyperactive. I'm ADD. That's all I've got is the ADD because the hyperactive I've outgrown or outaged. Use whatever term you want to use. But anyway, the last thing. In fact, just yesterday or the day before, Mary was saying, "Can't you just sit still and do nothing?" I said, "No." My teachers in grade school would ask my parents, "Does Benny ever walk anywhere?" Now my knees and joints don't allow me to keep up that pace anymore. But if I if I got up to get a book from the back shelves in the room, I got up from my desk and ran back there, got the book, and ran back to my desk. They didn't diagnose me with that until I was an adult. Then it explained why I've never been able to sit still in church. Good thing I'm a pastor and usually preach. When we first got married and we'd go to church together, uh, if I wasn't preaching, she'd look at me and say, can't you sit still? No. And when we were at Andrews, we went to the Dwajak church and our little two-year-old and three-year-old, she grew to be three while we were there, daughter couldn't sit still in church either. And right behind us is this couple with this beautiful little girl, just about the same age. She'd come in and sit down there and be perfectly still throughout the whole service. And Mama thought we were terrible parents because we couldn't get our daughter to sit still. Two years later, we get a letter of apology from Mama saying, I thought you were terrible parents until we had another child. <laughs> okay, so uh, <laughs> what? Yeah. So I don't want to go through that long line. I got to stand there still in line. Now I carry my Kindle, so if I'm in line for a while, I'm reading. She said, "Can I see your boarding pass?" I gave him a boarding pass. She said, just a moment. She goes back to the back room with my boarding pass. Five minutes go by. Ten minutes go by. And I'm wondering, I might as well have waited in line. Because there's more people coming taking my place. And finally she comes out and says, Mr. Maxson, thank you for your patience. Here's your boarding pass. You can go ahead and go to the gate. And she's upgraded me to first class. So I get on board. I sit down. I'm in first class. I'm on the aisle seat. And I pull out my... This is before times of iPads. This is when we had paper pads. My legal pad. And I stop, start working on notes for a class I'm getting ready to teach in Andrews, the pastor's or pastoral students. It's on pastoral spirituality. And I'm outlining stuff I'm going to be presenting. A gentleman comes, and I get up, let him take the window seat, sit back down, and I continue writing. Remember, 80 to 88 feet, I, I've got to be busy. I greet him, I introduce myself, go back to my material. When they close the door and they tell us we have to put the tray tables up, I then turn to him and we start a conversation. And he's a Mexican who owns a business. 
disobedient. Where his factory is down in Guadalajara, he lives and has his sales offices in Los Angeles. His production factories are in Guadalajara. And they produce cassette tapes. And CDs. They've just started producing CDs. And he looks at me and he says, what do you do? Are, are you a pastor or a professor or what? Because he'd seen what I was, and evidently looked at some of what I was writing. I said, well, you're right. I'm both. I'm a pastor. I also teach pastoral students. He said, well, I wondered what you were writing. And I tell him it's about a class on knowing and walking with God. He said, I'd love to have a relationship with Jesus, with God. He said, I've got a good friend of mine that we grew up together and he's a priest and I can't trust him. I don't trust trust any priest. So I can't go to anybody and get my sins forgiven. This friend of mine betrayed me and I don't trust any priest because of that. Like one of my church members in paradise came up to me after I'd been there about three months and he said, Pastor, I don't trust you. I said, that's fine. I don't trust you either. And he looked at me kind of funny. He said, I don't trust any pastor. I've dealt with too many pastors and preachers over my life. I said, I understand. And we became good friends anyway. Only problem I had is he carried a weapon. And as he got older, I began to question his judgment about when he should pull it and use it. And his family had the same concerns, and they finally moved in and took all his weapons away because they didn't trust him either. But I said, don't worry about it. He said, what I'm talking back on the plane now. He says, what do you mean, don't worry about it? I said, you don't have to go to a priest. He said, you don't? I said, no, you can go straight to God. He said, what? And so I gave him the Spanish translation of 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says, you mean I can go straight to God? I said, absolutely. That's the good news. He says, how do I do that? He says, I need that. I need to know God better. My wife and I are having struggles. In fact, we're even starting to talk about separating and getting a divorce. And I, I don't want that, but we're not happy together. Can God make a difference? I said, absolutely. He said, well, how do I do that? I said, you build a relationship with God. He said, how? I said, start out with reading Scripture. Are you familiar with the Bible? Yeah, I know what the Bible is. I said, do you have one at home? I think I know where it is. I said, do you know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? He said, yes, I understand that difference. I said, are you familiar enough with the Bible to know there are four Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He said, yeah, I do know that much. I said, let me tell you how to have a relationship with Jesus. First time I'd ever understood this concept. First time I'd ever talked, told anybody else about it. Remember, I've told you this is a work in progress. I keep learning. And some of the places I learn the most is when I'm helping somebody else walk with Jesus. I said, what you need to understand is relational Bible reading. Scripture was written to help us in a relationship with Jesus. And what you do is you, as you read... Every few verses, you ask yourself a couple of questions. What does this tell me about God? And the questions are here in the material. What does this tell me about me and God? And how does this help me walk with God? And the way you do that is you start with the Gospel of Mark. 
Now, for you folks here, I would say if you're not used to relational Bible reading, choose your favorite gospel. If you've not been, if you're not familiar with Scripture and you're new in the Christian walk, then start with the gospel that relates to you the best. Mark is the simplest. It's the simple story, probably Peter's gospel that he told to Mark. Luke is the proof about Jesus that Luke writes back to his friend Theophilus. And it's a Greek logical approach. Luke is the only Bible writer who thinks the way we do, with a Western Greek-based way of thinking. Everybody else is Eastern Hebrew way of thinking. So, Matthew. Matthew has the sermons and tells you more about Jesus. John, that's the love story. It's all about relationship. He won't even name himself. He calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. And he's the one that tells us about what Jesus said in John chapter 15. I no longer call you servant, but friend. John's my favorite, but it took me a while to get there. Because I don't start out focused on emotion and relationship. <laughs> what are you laughing about, Mary? <laughs> you don't have to give witness to this. <laughs> Some things are self-evident. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. <laughs> we have fun together, isn't that good? Uh, and you start, not in Genesis. The Bible was not written like every other book. The Bible is not a book. It's a collection of books. And if you want to develop a relationship with Jesus, don't start in Genesis 1. The two most often read books of the Bible are Genesis and Exodus. Because people start out reading by the time they get to live it because they're so confused and bored, they just stop. Now, having said that, we had a young pastor's wife in Paradise, one of our associates, the wife of one of our associates, who was very unhappy being a pastor's wife. She didn't want to be a pastor's wife. She was a pastor's kid. And when she and Milton got together, he wasn't a theology major. He was a computer science major. Okay. So she had it all planned. They got married, he graduated, they got married, and then he, had, he received a call in his heart and mind to go into pastoral ministry. And he went back to the seminary. And she's dragging her feet all the way. And he starts being a youth pastor, and she's not happy with God or with him. She didn't want to be a pastor's wife. She was not enjoying being a pastor's wife. Being a pastor's wife is one of the most difficult life experiences you can imagine. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God reached her heart. When I was teaching this one day, she came up to me and she said, Ben, I didn't find Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I found him in Deuteronomy. But you remember the reference there? Yeah, don't worry about that right now. Anyway, I think it's Deuteronomy 17-something, but uh, that's not important. The point is, if you go looking for him, you'll find it, because he said, you shall seek for me, and you shall find me when you search for me with all your heart. But it's easier in the gospel stories, because it starts with Jesus. And he came to show us the Father.
shows what God is like. And so I said, just start, and I've given you the whole process here. Start in the gospel, ask those verses, stop and ask God to show you what he wants you to know about him, and ask those questions. And keep reflecting on Jesus. Start with the last three chapters of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the last five or six chapters of John, the story of the cross. Why? Because Jesus in an eye, if I be lifted up, will draw on him. It's the story of the cross that has the greatest attractive power in the life of Jesus. You should read through that three times, every gospel, the last three or six chapters, depending on which gospel. Three times, praying, asking God to help you find Him. And when you're through doing that three times, the last three or six chapters, go back to chapter one of each of the gospels and read through the four gospels. Start with whatever one speaks to you. Read through those three times with that same prayer, asking the same question. I will guarantee you that before you get through that process of reflection and reading the story of Jesus, you will know Jesus. Why could I give him that guarantee? Because of what Jesus has promised. If you seek me, you'll find me. And if I be lifted up, I will draw. By the way, when I first got on, one of the things I did, if I ended up in first class or business class, I always made sure as soon as a person found out I was a Christian leader, a pastor, I made it very clear that I did not purchase a first class ticket. You know why? That I was upgraded either with points or by the airline. So here I'm sitting beside him and I said, by the way, I didn't buy a first class ticket. They gave it to me. They upgraded me on their own. He said, what do you mean? I said, I have no points with Adiolinus. I don't even have a membership card with Adiolinus Mexicanus. I have no points. He said, that's impossible. They never upgrade anybody unless they have points or dollars. I said, well, here I am. So we get to about the time I finished taking him through this whole process. We're getting ready to land. This has been two hours of discussing God and Jesus and then that whole process. He said, I, I, I wish I had that written. I said, no problem. I picked up my legal pad and I wrote this whole process out for him and gave it to him. And as we're coming into land, he says, now I understand why you were upgraded to this class. That's where I learned the concept of relational Bible. And so what I've given you here is all about that. So let's go to page 8. Developing a discipleship vision. Now, I developed this years ago dealing with the Pharisees in my seminars. Because when I used to start out teaching this and talking about the gospel and the assurance in Christ, people were afraid I was going to downplay or ignore obedience or saying you don't have to obey. And so I developed this to help people understand where I'm going. It became the core philosophy of my whole discipleship ministry. You've seen these four windows. Some call it the Johari window. been used in many different ways. The lower left-hand corner, the issues are low. Upper right-hand corner, both issues are high. We're going to compare or, or put together performance with relationship. Obedience with knowing Jesus. 
In the lower left-hand corner, both are low. This is the dabbler. The person who has religion as a hobby, likes to talk about God or, or ignore God, but doesn't want to take him seriously. The relationship and the knowledge. Performance are both low. Classic example of this in Scripture is the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Soon as God starts talking to her about her life, go get your husband. She says, I'm not married. Oh, that's true. You're not married. You've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not, you're not married to. Oh, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers say you ought to worship in that mountain, in this mountain. Your fathers say we ought to worship in that mountain. Where should we worship? It's amazing when God gets close to our hearts, we love to debate theology. When God gets close to our life issues, it's a lot easier to abort out and talk about theology. I've often wondered if this isn't the reason we fight about theology in the Adventist church. We're afraid of letting God get close. Deal with our real personal issues. That's the depth. If you focus on performance, you create the slave. Paul, slave to the law. Saul, by the time he becomes Paul, that's changed. Saul, slave to the law. It's all about what you have to do. Some of us have been in that quadrant for a long time. If you focus on relationship, you produce a child. High relationship, low performance. Anybody here have a two-year-old child or grandchild? What's your name, sir? Carl. That's my middle name. Glad to know you, Carl. Two-year-old. Boy or girl? Girl. She's got you wrapped around her little finger, doesn't she? And you know what? It's going to last for the rest of your life. She will always be your little granddaughter. Do you love her? Does she love you? How do you know? She comes to you, wants to be with you, wants to hug you, wants to sit on your lap. Is she starting to tell you she loves you? A little bit, okay. Look at his face. Tell me he's not got a good relationship with his granddaughter. So let me ask you a question. What's her name, by the way? Her name. Gwen? Oh, Quinn. Huh, interesting name. Quinn. When will Quinn become a human being? She already is? Well, let's check out her performance. Is she washing the dishes? Is she cleaning the house? Does she wash the car? What productive does she do? She loves you. Well, what does that accomplish? What evidence do you have that she's able to do anything? She doesn't. Well, how do you know she's human? If she's not productive, doesn't do anything for you, how do you know she's really human? You know her. Well, I know my little dog at home. Call him Chaco. He's a little chocolate-colored dachshund. Give me some evidence that will convince me she's a human being. 
She loves me and smiles. She's in a re- up here they're saying she's in a relationship. Well, my little Chaco is in a relationship with me. When I'm gone, Mary tells me he sits there in the hallway looking at the door, looking at my office and looking in the door waiting for me to come in. Oh, she's in our image. Well, have you ever seen people who had dogs that looked like them or they looked like their dogs? Somebody helped Carl out. I've about got him convinced he doesn't have a real human being for a granddaughter. I can't convince you. How can we know that his granddaughter is a human being? She was born of human parents. It's the relationship that defines who she is. Not the performance. And isn't that the same in our walk with God? Our identity is defined by who He is and who we are in that relationship with Him. Not by our performance. Do you get my point? But we're not happy with either one. Relationship, the child, or the slave. Nor is God. What does He want? He wants the partner friend. High performance, high relationship. That's the growing disciple. That's the growing Christian. So we're not saying forget about obedience. Understand obedience has to come in the right sequence. As we grow in the relationship, our obedience will grow. It's the result of the relationship. Performance in any area of life is the result of the relationship. Information doesn't change you. How many of you know information about health that you're ignoring? Information hasn't changed. You get my point? And it's the same way in our walk with God. Information doesn't change us. What changes us and transforms us is the relationship. Now, can we move a slave to become a partner friend? Impossible. Because that's the legalist. Focus on performance. And you can't move a legalist to become a partner friend. There's only one cure for the legalist. Why? Because legalism is the worst form of rebellion there is. It says, I don't need God. Me do it. I can do it on my own. It's worse than any other sin you can commit. Trying to be like God in your own strength is the ultimate rebellion. And the only cure, you know what the only cure for rebellion is? Execution. And you and I are not execution. But we do have to die and be born again. Where did Jesus plant his cross? We can grow a child to become partner friend. But the slave and the, or the dabbler both have to be crucified with Christ, born again, except you become as little children. And the way to become little children with Jesus is by dying with Him first. Death has to take place before birth can take place in the spiritual world. And the sin problem is so constant and persistent in our lives that Paul will say, I die daily. And that is never 
suicide. You've heard the phrase, we have to die to self. I'm not going to ask the question, ask you to respond to it. But I know I'm looking at a bunch of people who've never died to self because it's not possible. Many of us have been trying to do it for decades. It doesn't work. We can't die to self. It's not possible. But we can be crucified with Christ. And crucifixion is never suicide. Just think about it. You might be able to put the nails in your feet. If you could hold one nail right, you might be able to drive it into the other wrist, into one wrist. But what are you going to do with the other hand? And who's going to, how are you going to get the cross up? You can't crucify yourself. It's something that Christ does to us, in us, and for us. And once we have died, we are born anew. And we are learning and growing with Jesus because of the relationship with Him. And some of us are down here, dabblers or slaves. Don't worry about it. Look to Jesus. Don't try to fight that. Don't try to get out of that. Just look to Jesus. And as you get to know Him better, and you understand His story better, your story begins. And you'll trust Him. And you'll surrender. And Paul calls it being crucified with Him. And you'll start growing a new life with Him. Infant, baby, small child, growing into a mature partner and friend with Jesus. That's discipleship. That's the adventure that Jesus is inviting every one of us in. But I'll tell you something. The longer you stay in this legalistic slave quadrant, the harder it is to get out of it. And that's why death is the only appropriate description and process. And when we allow people around us to come into the church and be baptized on the basis of information and performance, and they stay in that quadrant, some of them drift back into the dabbler, they just play with God. Some of them walk away because we need to help them understand that once they know Jesus, they need to understand they have been crucified and born unmoved. And we teach them how to grow with Jesus. Little children learning to walk with Jesus. And if you're in that picture somewhere, start where you are and increase the walk with Jesus. Start with relational Bible reading and prayer. Prayer, the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. He is our friend, he's your friend, he's my friend. And he wants to know your heart. Now, he already knows your heart. He wants you to know. He knows your heart and loves you anyway. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the opportunity of knowing and walking with Jesus. Fill our hearts with assurance in Christ. 
and teach us how to walk with him more completely, more fully. Help us remember it's all about life in Jesus. In Jesus' name. Your homework assignment? What's that?